Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, it's Kasha, the producer here. I want to let you know that this episode describes suicide and mentions child abuse. And so it might not be suitable for everybody. When I see Kanaya Sue Turtle, 15 years old, with bruises all over her goddamn neck, with like a bruised noose around her neck, and realize after seeing all of her documents and all of her Facebook postings, realizing she was chronically suicidal and everyone knew it. And no one put a worker with her one-on-one, which is someone who is a term used where you, you do not leave that child's side because you know they're going to kill themselves. So when that doesn't happen, where's the outrage for that? Because that child shouldn't have been left alone. The journalist whose voice you just heard, Kenneth Jackson, calls himself a crime reporter. But what he covers is the child welfare system for APTN, Aboriginal People's Television Network. What goes on in that system, he believes, is a crime. The last time we spoke about his work was after he released a report titled Death as Expected, which revealed that 102 Indigenous kids died in just five years, each one of them connected in some way to the Ontario child welfare system. As Kenneth documented, these deaths were not accidents. They were the predictable outcomes of a system 
that continues to spend less money on a kid in need if they are indigenous than if they are not. A system that literally values indigenous life less than it does anybody else's. If all of this went underreported before the pandemic, it's now all but invisible. But the fact is, what is happening in the child welfare system across this country is a coronavirus story. Kids in care, Indigenous and non-Indigenous children in foster care, in group homes, kids who have been removed from their families due to things like their parents' drug problems, their lives, already in turmoil, are more disconnected than ever, are more out of sight than ever. But not to Kenneth Jackson. He has been reporting on parents who have totally lost access to their kids because of this pandemic. Right in the middle of this crisis, he won the Press Freedom Award from the Canadian Committee for World Press Freedom. He recorded some grateful remarks in an acceptance speech video, and then went back to work, filed a report on a disabled 27-year-old woman who's found herself living in an elder care home where she contracted coronavirus. These stories are relentless. And the systems that are challenged by these stories, well, they can seem intractable. All of that takes a toll. Months ago, we asked Kenneth to come on the show and talk about it all, but he wasn't ready. Today he is. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jessica Lee, Jeffrey Simon Brown, Carl Cecil, Robert Wakulat, Maggie Boss, Laurie McGrath, Philippe Rosting, and Chris Cook. I'm Chris Cook. I live in Edmonton. I split my time between being an actor and a union employee for the city. I support Canada Land because its entire suite of podcasts are very important to the Canadian media landscape. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Kenneth, maybe we could begin by just having you like define for us briefly, what is the scope of this issue like before the pandemic hit? When we're talking about indigenous kids in the child welfare system and the problems that you found there. Absolutely, completely broken. It was a nightmare before the pandemic. I hate using the word broken because, you know, I've been APTN for a while now and we tend to be educated a little differently and understanding that it's not necessarily broken. It's designed that way. Like it's been designed to apprehend, to destroy families. Like that's like, there's, there's no way of getting around it. Like that's just the way it goes. And in a lot of ways, like even the indigenous agencies in Ontario, they're no different than let's say the um, non-indigenous agencies. Like I have more data. Like I have a lot of stuff I'm working on. I can tell you right now, there's no difference between the two. They both have been geared, mandated to operate one way, take the child. And Ontario is supposed to be the leader in all this, right? They're supposed to be, that's why I focus really on Ontario. It's supposed to be so much further ahead than everybody else. Like in terms of Indigenous agencies or on reserve child welfare, that all stems from a 19, like 1965 funding agreement between the federal government and uh, the province and First Nations in Ontario which has been the catalyst for the 60 scoop before then nobody had jurisdiction on reserve. It just, there wasn't really an apprehensions. Like it just didn't happen. Like it's been proven. Right? Ontario kind of sparked that whole thing where you had residential schools taking children, you know, and we all know the history behind that. 60 scoops happen. It's, it's you know, originates really in Ontario, spreads across the country and you see the on reserve apprehension spike. And they've never really gone down, right? They just, they've stayed there. They continue to take them. And then, then you see over incarceration, you see that that's the, how it ripples into everything, right? How many indigenous kids are in child welfare? Do, do we know? No, we have no idea. I wish I could tell you, cause that's something I've been trying to prove for, oh God, three years now. So, so in Ontario, like if you ask for the on reserve numbers, they have a pretty good idea because they have a, unfortunately, they have a, a serial number attached to their forehead, like the Indian Act status card number, essentially. So you can track on reserve a little better. There's those numbers and they're around in Ontario around between, they fluctuate between 13 to 1500 a year. Off reserve though is where you really need to be looking to, like in Ottawa. I know there's a lot of children in Ottawa who are, classified as in care and group homes running around like the, the Rito center they're, i've written about them dying here and whatnot they're not tracked so under the former liberal government in 2017 they enacted the anti-racism act good stuff right makes sense and in there they had a data collection but they gave themselves so much time four years to get 38 non-indigenous agencies that i'm sending them race-based data and not able to tell you how many children are classified as Indigenous in care is really frustrating. And those in-care numbers are big. And in comparison to, let's say, white kids in Ontario who are caught up in the system or non-Indigenous kids caught up in the system, 
it's crazy, right? Like I don't have them on the top of my head, but if you only have 300,000 First Nations people in Ontario and they represent 1,500 kids, and then I guess I think overall, and there's like 14 million people and there's like, I don't know, like 12,000 kids classified as in care. Like you can start to put the numbers together and see like, okay, why are they getting pulled, pulled in so much more? Well, that's only a little bit of it. That's only, you know, it's a large chunk of it. But what about the off-reserve kids? What about the, the Inuit or the Métis? The Métis were never classified as Indigenous in Ontario under the child welfare system until 2018. What we do know is that Indigenous kids are wildly overrepresented in the system. And from your reporting is, is that in a five-year period from, from 2013 to 2017, 102 of them who were connected to the child welfare system in this province alone here in Ontario died. And we also know, and, and I spoke with Cindy Blackstock about this, that these outcomes can be expected. They can be anticipated because we spend less money per kid on Indigenous kids in the system than, than we do on non-Indigenous kids. Yes. Kenneth, I have no doubt that some future prime minister will be apologizing for this one day. You know, you know, like when kids were in residential schools or or during the 60s scoop, nobody thought of it as an evil thing, uh, or at least that was not widely understood as, as a, a dark mark against this country, as a shameful thing. That took some time for us to recognize it. I think that your work is making it clear that another horrible thing is happening right now, and, and we just maybe don't have a name for it yet. And, and we haven't recognized it yet. And maybe that's harder to do because unlike residential schools, it's still happening. Well, some will call it a millennium scoop. There's a reason why I focus on it so hardly, like so strongly. Like I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to write about this stuff. You know, I've been a reporter for 16 years straight now, I guess, going full time. But it wasn't something I set out to do. In fact, when I was a previous reporter, I avoided child welfare cases because of the privacy issues, right? It's just a pain in the ass. But the last three years, I haven't been able to stop because it needs to be seen. It need, everyone needs to see this and be outraged by it. You know, that's a quote from like uh, the former child advocate in Ontario. He walks around in continuous state of outrage because he knows so, and I've often said, you know, three years ago, around this time, I wrote a story saying three First Nations girls died in group homes in six months, you know, made for a good headline. Oh my God, three, three young girls, uh, 12, 13, and uh, 15 young. And then there's a fourth one, Tammy Kiash in Thunder Bay. So I'm like, oh my God, there's four in six months. And I remember thinking, oh, I I this is it. This is the moment where everything changes. I have to work my ass off. Uh, I have to figure this out. I have to understand everything skip ahead until last September when I when we published Death is Expected, where we say 102 kids died. Everyone knew that it was higher than four and six months. How I can give you 10 more names right now for during that time period. And it, that made big news, right? Toronto Star picked it. Everyone picked up those deaths of, of, those, of those young girls. It was a big deal. It was way worse than what we were reporting. And people in the system have known forever. Decade after, I found so many goddamn reports going back to like the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, all the way to 2018. The one on the 12 kids that died in, in uh, residential care, they did, um, did a report on saying the exact same thing. Failure after failure. At what point do you stop calling them failures? It's not really a failure if it keeps happening. And I'm really pushing. I'm trying to get 
people to see this for what it is. It's a crime. I'm a crime reporter. I look at it things through a different lens for a story. Yeah, I'm a producer at APTN. Technically, my term isn't crime reporter, but I am by nature. That's who I am. And I'm trying to get people to see this in a different light from the chief coroner down. I've had many conversations with him uh, about this and and other people. And oftentimes the excuse is not necessarily from chief coroner, because I don't want to speak out of term for Dirk. Chief coroner is there's too many people involved. There's too many. So how you know, who are you going to charge? So if you're an officer, you know, police officer, and you show up to a, to a group home where a, a child just killed herself, you know, happens all the time. It happens way too much in Ontario every year. And you show up and you go, they, it's almost like they've been preconditioned to go, oh, shit, another child welfare death, suicide. Okay, well, let's just cross this off and pump it over to the, the corner and get on going. They need to see it. You need to see what I've seen. You need to look at those reports in a different way. Like, I, you know, and they have access to way more than I do. You need to see it for what it is that some, somewhere along the way, a crime is being committed. And, and it's my goal is within the end of the year to show exactly who that is in the scenarios that I'm working on right now. I want to show how this happened and why someone needs to look at this as a crime. And people need to change their thinking when it comes to child welfare and realize when these kids die, my God, there is a trail of neglect, of negligence leading up to it, a trail. And it's documented every, it's always documented. And I'm not, uh, I'm not, I don't have a you know, horse in this race. I was never in child welfare. I've never had a child, child welfare. Hopefully it never happens. Um, but so I don't have a horse in the race. I'm just a, an outsider looking at this and going, well, if that baby was three months old in a crib full of toys and blankets, wait a minute, I have three kids who were three months old. I would never put them in a crib like that. That's insane. Why did this registered nurse who's running a foster home on Thunder Bay think it was okay to put a three-month-old in a crib like that? And then the coroner saying, well, they died of a crowd, you know, it was a crowded crib, but we can't determine the cause of death. The manner may have been the crib. Well, because you can't tell when a baby suffocates, no crime. Undetermined. That's the term he used, undetermined. Uh, I, need, I think people need to see that differently. Who are the criminals? I mean, is this just about um, building a, a new system or do like specific individuals need to be held responsible? Well, I think if someone was held responsible for one of these deaths, someone might think twice about just throwing a baby in a crowded crib. Maybe things would, you know, people would have a different tune or a different tone, tone to these, these kids or they'd have a different approach. The only thing I've heard to, like, really about change is that sometimes I hear about people telling me that there's my stories without even knowing them come across their desk. And all I can think of is I hope that they look at that and go, I don't want him to do that to me. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be in that story because you don't want to be in one of my stories. It's, it's, you don't want to be in that end. So Am I um, campaigning to have someone charged? I think people need to look at it, like I said, differently. They need to see it for what it is. I'm just trying to write it in a way that might be different. Do you know what I mean? I'm trying to respectfully honor these children and their families because they. I don't do any any of these stories without their on permission. I just want to write the shit out of it until people understand. You write about how this pandemic has separated mothers from their children. And I'm wondering if you can take us through that. 
I report on uh, three mothers who were denied access to their children through Ontario Court of Justice. Uh, these are children who were apprehended. They were going through visitations fine until COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, uh, their visitation was denied because it wasn't safe for the workers. Like a lawyer I know knew someone in her firm was fighting to get, it was a newborn. The baby was just born during the pandemic started. And from there, I was like trying to look at that case. And then I found a few more, but I don't know what I've, what I determined through court cases and everything and judges own words and everything was that these parents were fine for the most part to keep visiting their children. Some of them were, one of them was okay to have her child back, but because of COVID, it slowed things down. And I, you know, a logical person, common sense goes, well, okay, I understand that. Like, I understand that there needs to be changes because we're all trying to adapt. Like, I'm calling, talking to you from my garage because my three kids are inside the house running around like crazy. The thing is, the flip side in that is maybe a little, you know, it's in the story, but it was a really good argument a lawyer made there. It kills me that I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But he said, you know, we're not seeing that in other parts of family court, whereas, you know, you and your partner have a dispute and you divorce and you have split custody. That that was still able to go. That was fine. You guys, you guys are good parents. You guys are seen in a different light. So you can have your child. You can back and forth. No big deal. It's okay. But these three parents, no way. That's still the case. Like it's still shut down. Like there's a reason why one of the three mothers I wrote about that same week when she was going to file her appeal, two days after I wrote the story, she got a call. Her lawyer got a call from the agency saying we're going to return the, you know, her daughter like that. Snap a finger. Everything's fine. Well, it wasn't fine three days ago. So why is it fine now? Why couldn't she always get her child back? Why did it take a reporter coming along? That's not good child welfare practice. For, you know, if I come along, <laughs> hit you over the head with a story, and all of a sudden, are you or I email you because this has happened too, where I email you saying I'm doing a story on this, and, like, and here's the questions that I have on this. I get, like, you know, give you do do your due diligence, and boom, magically the child is returned home. Kenneth, is there anything different about reporting these stories during the pandemic? In a lot of ways, I've used the pandemic to press certain areas to help some of the, the people in the system. It's crazy how fast things can change when there's political will, right? Like there's kids who from 18 to 21, it's called aging out. It's like they age out into extended care. There's benefits to it. Basically, they get their rent paid. They get 800 bucks a month. I knew of one in Ottawa I followed for you know, a number of years, and he aged out March 1st. Nothing. Not a SIM card, not a status card, no money, nothing. Just see you later, take care, take off. And I was like, okay, okay, well, let's, let's look a little more into this. This is a kid who has been in care his whole life. He was a crown ward and then was in extended care. The agency just dumped him. So I went on, I was like, we need to do something about these kids who are aging out in this pandemic. They're not going to be able to get anything because they're aging out literally into the streets with nothing. So what I did was I was like, I need to ask Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, what's he doing about it? Because I'd asked his office for a week and they wouldn't say anything. You know, it started kind of driving me crazy. I'm like, you know, I see the urgency to this. And um, I went in my basement and went on that silly teleconference call. For two days, I couldn't get on. I was like, man, I'm on this call for over an hour and a half. This is like prime real estate for a parent of three at home, co-parenting with my wife, right? And I'm like, I can't waste this much time. So I asked, the, I asked someone, I go, how did you get 
a call-in. Are they just purposely doing this to me? Because I'm APTN thinking the whole paranoia thing. And I was like, they're like, no, no, it's just it's tough. You have to call in early. So I called in really early on the third day. And I forced them to put me on the call waiting on hold because they didn't want to do it. I had to call back three times, so I found someone that would do it. And I made damn sure I was on that list. It turns out I was number one. So right off the bat, Doug Ford's talking about, we're not going to spare any expense for anybody. We're going to protect all Ontarians. We must spare no expense when it comes to supporting our healthcare workers, when it comes to protecting our families, protecting our seniors. And we will spare no expense when it comes to protecting what we hold most dear. It's almost like you put your hand up. Okay. We will go to the phone line for questions. First question. From Kenneth Jackson at APTN. Please go ahead. Hi, Premier. You just said you won't spare any expense for our most vulnerable people. So why haven't you placed a moratorium on young people aging out of the child welfare system during this pandemic? Well, you know something I've, I've said over and over again. Uh, and he's, oh, you know, he kind of stuttered, but he's caught, out, caught off guard. His first question, he wasn't prepared for it. And he probably doesn't even know what the hell I was talking about. He made something about, there's money, but, you know, we can't go crazy. You know, we don't want, there's no, you can't go spend everything. We can't print money like the federal government. It was exactly what he said, I think. The federal government, uh, they have the capacity, the financial capacity. Uh, I always say they, you know, they have the printing machine that can print the money. We, we don't. You know, and then the follow-up question, so are you going to do it? Follow-up. So you'll call a moratorium for these children? Well, again, uh, we will uh, refer that to uh, people of social services, our minister. Everything's on the And we'll look into, we'll look into it. Uh, and uh, three hours later, boom, they uh, issued a, a statement to me saying that um, they were going to put a moratorium on it. So the pandemic was March 11th. What about uh, my guy who aged out on March 1st? So I contact his worker. I said, we're doing a story on this. And I told him, I said, contact your worker too, just in case she doesn't see my messages. And tell her, APTN's doing a story on this um, and see what happens. So tell her to contact me. Boom. Money back. Return to him. For the foreseeable future. Even the chief sent like 150 bucks. I was like, bonus. Help the kid out, right? You just you abandoned him with no SIM card, no nothing. He can't even get it. He can't even get a job if he wanted it. That story, the, the the thing that really stuck with me from it is this description of these kids who like uh, officially the province is their parent. Mm -hmm. You know, th these kids who are in care. And, and that's the way that they live their whole lives. And, and then one day they're 18. And uh, in the case of the kid you were just talking about, uh, Martel Bob, this young Ojibwe man, he spent his whole life in care and then he's 21 and he's out. Just thinking about all of that from the perspective of like, how was he parented by his parent, the province of Ontario? How did his parents prepare him uh, to be independent? They don't seem like very good parents. <laughs> no, his parents uh, disregarded him. Uh, but they would have done no, Jesse. They would have once a year come and done a, a file review on his file to make sure that he's getting the care that he was supposed to be getting. And they would have learned, like they do in almost every single Crown Ward in Ontario, that they're failed. Martel Bob, he went through hell. It's, I, you name it, it happened to him, for the most part. And he talks about it in other stuff. I've had him on Nation to Nation, the show I produce, and I've he's talked about it. He pushed me for three years to do a story. I said, no, 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 I don't. That's everything, too. I'll wait, right? I don't want to exploit these kids i don't want even though he's, a, he's an adult 
he's 20 when he was asking me to do these things. I was like, let's just wait. I want to make sure that you're prepared for it. Because you put your name to a story, so it's out there. Are you prepared for that? And I take these kids through that. Anybody. And you know, in his case, it worked, right? And he got his, his, his funding back, at least. His parents had discarded him three years prior when he, when he turned 18. I mean, besides the, on the funding. But uh, his parent being the premier of Ontario, right? I have to recognize some other voices. Last year, when that video surfaced from Manitoba in a Manitoba hospital of a newborn baby being wrenched from its mother's arms by the authorities in her hospital room. And, and when I discussed that on the podcast, there were people who wrote to us uh, on behalf of the nurses, uh, the cops, the social workers, and some of them were angry. And they said, you do not understand this. Like, like the people who do this sort of work, they take no pleasure in this. It is a miserable thing. It's the worst part of their job that they have to make tough calls like that, that they have to execute the orders of the court. Nobody wants to do that. It's a wretched thing. But they are dealing with situations where mothers have addiction issues or, or, or other problems where the state has determined that these babies, you know, they have to put the children first and, and that the babies are simply not safe with their parents. And in describing this as a crime uh, or, or, or holding those people like personally responsible when accidents happen, it makes a lot of people very, very angry because uh, they feel that they are also victims of the system. And this does include, as you say, you know, like uh, Indigenous child welfare agencies. So how do you respond to, to those workers who are at the front lines, who have to endure their own sleepless nights over what happens? Well, I speak to some of them, right? Like, and I, I get that. So as a logical person, absolutely. I, I understand what you're saying. And I think it's a fair point. I'm glad you brought it up. I can't focus on on the good. So put it that way. There are people who are want to do good work. I get it. But there's a lot of things that aren't working very well. And that's where a reporter needs to look at. But when I see Kanaya Sue Turtle, 15 years old, with bruises all over her goddamn neck, with like a bruised noose around her neck, and realize after seeing all of her documents and all of her Facebook postings, realizing she was chronically suicidal and everyone knew it. And no one put a worker with her one-on-one, which is someone who is a term used where they, you do not leave that child's side because you know they're going to kill themselves. So when that doesn't happen, where's the outrage for that? Because that child shouldn't have been left alone. So there needs to be some acknowledgement, finally, of what, how things operate. And I can show you file after file where it was just recently, I'll just, just say it's out there and it won't trigger too much from my story, I think, but a young girl was going to kill herself and the worker's like, I'm off at three. I can't get overtime. I'm not allowed to work overtime. So I'll follow up in the morning. It's too late. She killed herself. This was going to happen. And yes, that happens. That happens sometimes where there's a lot of, lead up or a lot of false cases but that worker said oh you know what i can't work past three you know i don't know how that worker's work feels right now but maybe somewhere along there there's something that needs to be addressed and that's what i'm hoping to do and you know i think people just with people who do good work like you know i think everyone will agree that there's always going to be times where a child has to be removed from the home there are going to be those times it's not as much as you think when it comes to massive physical abuse. You're never going to really hear about those psychopaths. 
those guys, those parents can hide it really well. They're not, you're not going to get, you're not, they're like such a small number. This is poverty-based stuff, Jesse. This is addiction, a trauma. It's all trauma, particularly when you're looking at on reserve. It, it's rooted in that. So, and that's colonization, residential schools. You're still seeing it. And in fact, it's still working in other ways. But until you go, like when Trudeau goes, we've, in our first term, we gave $17 billion, pat ourselves in the back, more work to be done. $17 billion doesn't doesn't even come close to going to where you need to go to correct this. There's never money for this stuff. There's never money for these kids. And report after, like, you know, like, you know, to those workers. So what would I say to those workers? I guess to answer in a nutshell, why do reports keep coming out that you're failing? Why? And that is, so it's not me. Everything I've told you today is not my opinion. It's not something I'm like deduced. It's based on facts. I think perhaps part of your trouble in making this land with people as a news story is that it's not news. I mean, this is, this is nothing new. This is how it is, which is not to say that like uh, nothing can be done and we should just wring our hands. But uh, you know, it, it raises the question, like, can this be fixed? Yes. And there's people who are working on that right now who, who are showing me what they're doing. And at some point, I know it sucks for your podcast and your listeners right now, but, there are people who are doing good work and who have a, who see a way out, but it, it it's it's a drastic change and it might involve leveling the whole system the way it is right now and starting over again and thinking of a different approach because it's clearly not working. So let's just get that straight. It's not working, right? To be a journalist, you 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 have to believe that it matters to tell these stories and, and that doing that can change things. I mean. Like, otherwise, why put yourself through it? Yeah, well, because it's not fun, man. Like, I've gotten, you kind of go through waves, right? With this, it creeps up on you. And you realize, why am I so upset? Or why am I so, I never really got depressed in life. I'm just kind of emotional. It just, it's like rust just slowly gets into you. And then you have to to acknowledge it. And that's happened a couple of times where I've had to, like, okay, I need to acknowledge that constantly thinking about these deaths and seeing them. And there's lots of other videos I've seen too that haven't gone out. You know, it it impacts you. So I can imagine those workers who call you, it's tough. I get it. I can appreciate that. But it's a a lot tougher when you're burying kids who shouldn't be dead, who are removed from their homes for their protection and are now in the ground. That can't happen. Until that stops happening, and it's happening crazy amount across the country, to all the people who are upset about, well, we do a good job, well, you're not. Because why are these kids dying? In a lot of ways, the system needs to be buried, not the children. And I'm trying to, to lay the truth bare, and I guess in, in essence, bury that system, and needs to be because it needs to change completely. And we'll show that soon, how that can be done, and why there is hope. And while there are people who I'm talking to who are trying to do this right now. You put a lot of pressure on yourself. All the pressure in the world. After becoming a parent, I couldn't even watch fictional depictions of kids getting hurt. I know. Same here. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the stuff that you encounter in your work? Well, you know, it helps to, you know... I don't look fondly back at my time at the Ottawa Sun because it is what it is. 
especially now it's just just garbage but uh, i quit in 2010 late 2010 before i went super crazy but i did a lot of door knocks i'm not sure a lot of reporters do those anymore really um because i use facebook a lot i mean getting in the house an hour or two after they died maybe the next day sit down with a grieving mother and then walking out with a photo album you know what i mean it you learn how to do that it's it it's a bit sociopathic in, in some ways because you know you're I and I got into these homes because I cared and they and they know it. I come from a different approach. I, I do care and I don't do it for headlines. I've learned to become less like that. But maybe in the beginning, I, I wanted the front pages. But anyways, I would get in. You build that, that skin, that sort of speak, that thick skin. I hate to call it that. It needs to be done. And this is like, I don't want to get all like crazy about it, but. All my life experiences, I swear to God, I thought, it was the, I thought about this the other night when I was thinking about coming on here. I was like, what am I going to say to this guy? How am I going to explain to him why I do this? Because no one in the right mind does this for as long as I have, because it's insane. And all my life experiences from, from childhood on is reflected in every story. Because it's taught me how to do that. And it's shown me a way to do this and to handle it. So without getting into details of my personal life, because who cares? You can imagine there's a reason why I can go on the street to a homeless man or woman, sit down next to them and get them to tell me their whole life story because I can relate to them in a way. And I, throw my, I live in that darkness for work, which if you know me, anyone, anyone who does, it's pretty much around the clock. So part of me is thinking about that. The other part of me is wondering right now, after we're done talking, I, I got to take my kids for a bike ride. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you just got to you learn how to do it. One last question for you. You talk about trying to do this work respectfully. I imagine that that must be such a challenge when you are poking around in the most intimate parts of, of people's lives, uh, their personal lives, their home lives, in the cases of parents with addiction issues, you know, like their personal failings, um, issues around their health, uh, issues that prevent them from being the parents uh, that they want to be. It's just very, very personal. And you are not an indigenous person. How do you manage that tension and that level of invasiveness? And, you know, issues around exploitation that have been a part of journalism by white people about indigenous people for as long as we've been doing journalism? Well, I've listened, I've been at APTN full time since October 29th, 2012. And I've listened, I've been educated. I've been softened up a bit in terms of my approach. Whereas before APTN, I can admit that I would use terms that I wouldn't use now, like, like a like a hooker or a prostitute. Another example was I was running the website for us for a few months while one of our guys was off. And um, Tina Fontaine, the young girl that was pulled out of the Red River in Winnipeg, and the trial was unfolding. And this was like 2018. I saw the copy come in. One of our reporters went there, and they're just cop- they're just reporting what's in the court. I get it. It's and it said Tina Fontaine was drunk and stoned. So when I saw that, I go, we're not running that. 
And I go, what do you mean? I go, we're not running that. I go, who gives a shit if she was drunk and stoned? It doesn't matter. It's not why she was killed. She was killed because someone's a, a you know, a piece of shit. We're not going to make her the suspect in this or vilify, you know, whatever, right? And lo and behold, saw that train coming, right? Next day, Globe Mail, everyone, CBC, they just got smoked because they all ran with it. I'm sensitive. I've become sensitive to certain issues because I listen. I've become educated. I had really good bosses, strong, strong indigenous females. Um, Francine Compton was my boss for a long time in Ottawa, an amazing woman who always supported me and would uh, not be afraid to, to teach me something. Uh, you know, Karen, our former news director, always had her support because I would listen. I just, I'm not indigenous. I am a reporter and I'm working on, on things where I am right in, right in your home. I'm right in the worst, hardest part of your life. And I just listen. That's it. your Canada land. We make this stuff because people support us. Uh, we would like your support and we'd like to give you ad-free versions of the show when you do support us for $5 a month. Just look at the show notes. There's a link you can click or you can go to canadalandshow.com slash join. You can also send us support directly at support at canadalandshow.com. Email me if there's something you think I should know at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. We post original articles there all the time and some other shows like Oppo and Commons are well worth your time. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89 percent off usps and ups make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com use code program for a special offer that's stamps.com code program.